Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. In many ski towns across the West, locals are facing a range of issues like the uncertainty of our changing climate. When do we know when like the apocalypse has hit? And he was like, you know, I think we're in it right now. Today, we explore ski culture and the challenges facing ski towns with veteran ski journalist Heather Hansman. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Later in the show, as some suspect it's linked to cancer and other health problems, we'll hear about efforts in motion to ban the use of PFAS, a group of chemicals found in many products, from being used in ski wax. But first, we're going to look at ski towns and the social, environmental, and economic challenges they face. Many rural towns across the Mountain West are experiencing a moment of crisis, water scarcity, and the threat of wildfire, as well as extreme income inequality and a shortage of workers at resorts, partly driven by the very high cost of living there. All of this is impacting the world of skiing, from the collective culture skiers carry with them to the snow they pursue. Veteran ski journalist Heather Hansman examines these issues in her book Powder Days, Ski Bums, Ski Towns, and the Future of Chasing Snow. She joins us now to talk about the life of those married to skiing, the economic challenges facing rural mountain ski towns, and how our changing climate could impact the future of skiing as we know it. Heather, thanks for talking with me today. Thanks so much for having me. The introduction of the book is centered around this sort of enigmatic idea of chasing snow and the thrill of all of that, and also on some of the stark realities that you would come to realize the deeper that you got into that world. First, tell us about how you became so enchanted with the world of skiing. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, I am somebody, I grew up in New England. I grew up on the East Coast. Um in a family that skied a little bit and kind of spent a chunk of time in the mountains. But I got really fascinated with the idea of skiing and ski, being a ski bum and kind of, you know, devoting your life to that thing. Um, as probably as a teenager, kind of as I watched ski movies and read magazines and kind of got hooked into that idea. Um, and then I moved to Avon, Colorado to Beaver Creek um, right after I graduated from college, uh, kind of on the the advice of a guy that I worked with at my summer job, kind of sight unseen, decided I was going to do that. Um, even though I had never, I'd been to Colorado, I think once before, but I just really love this idea of like chasing adventure and living in the mountains and kind of getting to, you know, push your body every day. So I jumped when I was 21 and it has shaped a lot of my life since then. <laughs> and I hear there's some really good skiing in Beaver Creek. There is. Yeah. So what, then led you to explore the issues in your book about ski towns, as well as, you know, the people who live there and some of the concerns that are threatening skiing as a whole? Um, there were there were sort of several threads that got me to that. Um, I think one of them is I, um, I did the kind of seasonal ski town living for a couple seasons. I lived 
am in the Vail Valley. I live in Summit County and kind of moved around. Um, and I eventually kind of washed out of that world. I was, I got hurt. I was sort of stressed out by, um, you know, always trying to find a different seasonal job and kind of the instability of that. Um, and so I became a journalist. I became a writer. Um, and so as I did that, I kind of watched my friends that I had, you know, been 21 and 22 with and had started doing these kind of like mountain town jobs. I watched them kind of try and figure out how to make their way and try to grow up and buy houses and start families. And so I could kind of see almost the, you know, sliding doors of my life and what it could have been, um, even though I wasn't exactly doing that anymore. And I still really, there's so many ways I still feel tied to that world and still still love it and still feel a part of it. But I can also see the, the hard parts and kind of, you know, see what I felt like I was missing out for on my own by not living in a town like that anymore, but also saw the kind of challenges that people were facing. So it felt like this question that was really tied to a lot of the ways I was trying to figure out how to shape my life and, you know, the forces that were shaping people that I love and care about now. Yeah. I'm curious if that kind of, you know, income inequality and the the real difficulty of people who are working these jobs being able to afford living in the towns where they actually work. Was that an issue right from the start? Or had you seen that evolve over the years and become more of a problem? I think it's both. I think that it was always, you know, a lot of times you you move to a town like you know, Avon's an example. Um, and there's kind of this like social force that says that, you know, like you're you're here on purpose. You chose to come to this town. Like you don't, you know, the part of your payment is getting to live in this amazing place and, you know, getting to live on vacation. Um, and so wages are often really low in a lot of these places in service industry jobs. So I think it's always been hard or for a long time, it's been hard to make a living there. But I think there's been a lot of forces that have um, made it harder. And especially in the past couple of years, I think a lot of things are coming to a head. Um, you know, housing has really changed in the past couple of years with the pandemic, because all of a sudden people who are maybe working high wage jobs in a city can be untethered from their jobs and can live in an Aspen or a Breckenridge or, you know, wherever they want to. Um, and while that's happened and cost of housing has gone up, wages have been pretty stagnant in the recreation industry. Um, and there's been, I think we've seen this in a lot of Colorado resorts this year, there's been some battles over trying to figure out wage increases, unionization of workers. You know, there's, there's, I think we're kind of at a tipping point where figuring out how to live in these places is becoming a really difficult battle. Yeah. Well, in Powder Days, you write at one point that you thought being a real skier meant this commitment to the constant sense of chase. How did your sense of what it means to be a real skier evolve over the years? <laughs> that's, that's kind of a fun question because I think it's still still evolving for me but I think you know especially when I was younger you know in my early 20s and trying to prove myself and trying to fit in in these very specific places it felt like I always had to be had to be pushing it and had to be trying to do something harder and more extreme and going bigger and keeping up um and I think you know maybe I've just gotten older and a little softer but I think that that sort of chase and push feeling doesn't feel quite as relevant anymore and now so much of it for me feels like it's tied to you know being outside and moving my body and being in a beautiful place and being with people that I love I think the community aspect has been something that's become a much more prominent part of it as I've grown up and kind of like stayed in that world longer so it's not just 
how big can you go? It's, you know, who do you get to do it with and where are you? Yeah. Have you had the sense that this kind of sense of the chase has shaped the culture around skiing? And I'm kind of thinking about a character you describe in the book, uh, Ski Bum in Jackson Hole, uh, I think Benny Wilson. Yeah, Benny's a Benny's a really fun, he's just a really interesting person. He's somebody who grew up in Jackson. He's kind of one of the few locals. Um, and he, as a teenager and kind of a young person, uh, was one of the first people kind of like getting into the, you know, like what we now call side country into kind of the terrain around the resort that was really untouched. Um, he formed this kind of crew of skiers called the Jackson Hole Air Force, who were the most extreme skiers on the mountain at that time. And they were really the ones kind of like on the leading edge of the edge of the culture, both in terms of what what they were skiing and what the terrain was like, and then also how they were doing it and who they were doing it with. So I think there is this sort of almost mythological idea of the ski bomb as this person who is kind of like out on the edge, pushing it on the edge of society, kind of going hard and in every capacity. And I think that that's exciting, but I think that it also can be problematic in a lot of ways. I know there's a whole bunch of videos on YouTube of people doing kind of what I would consider extreme skiing. It's really fun to watch. And I just think I would never, ever, ever do that. (laughs) And I think that not everyone can do that. And that's part of, you know, like what makes it special and exciting, but that's also something that makes it really hard. It creates this kind of like, you know, unfair comparison point of what's, what's realistic and what's not. Yeah. And it really does kind of solidify this, I think, this culture, um, how do you think that sense of identity, you mentioned the mythology of the ski bum, um, but how do you think that sense of identity shapes the way that we collectively think about skiing? Mm, yeah, I think, um, well, I think in a lot of ways, I think there's something very American in some weird ways about a like a hero myth. And I think in a lot of ways, this kind of ski bum archetype, you watch these videos, like you said, of, you know, somebody going out and climbing a huge mountain or throwing themselves off a cliff. Um, And I think it can feel sort of, you know, exciting and adventurous. And like, I think there's something in human nature that makes us want to like push our limits a little bit. Um, But I think that it can, it can also be a really narrow archetype. And if you look kind of, you know, part of, part of the book was kind of looking back at the history of the the ski industry. And if you look at that, it's always been this or maybe not always, but often has been this really narrow vision of what that person is and can be. And, you know, it's often a male, white, physically active, financially privileged, able-bodied, straight, cisgender person. You know, there's kind of a narrow framework for what that ski bum has been. And I think that's kind of one of the tricky things that skiers and skiing is facing right now is how do we kind of open up that lens and show that skiers don't just have to be that one single archetype. That's the first part of our conversation with author and veteran ski journalist, Heather Hansman. We'll be back to that conversation after a short break. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. We're speaking today with Heather Hansman, author of the book Powder Days, Ski Bums, Ski Towns, and the Future of Chasing Snow. Heather, can you zoom out a bit and square us up with where the ski industry is in 2022? Apart from the side of the sport with those who are extremely dedicated to it, what does it look like for a more casual participant? 
Yeah, yeah. It's not all, you know, we talk about this kind of archetype of the ski bum that's kind of like the top of the pile, but that's obviously not everybody who's going skiing. Sure. Um, and I think a lot of the, you know, if you look at the demographics of skiers and skier numbers have been fairly flat for the past, I think, decade or so. They're actually, they were actually up last year. A lot more people were skiing in the pandemic. So I think people were craving some outside time, um, but it tends to be heavily white. It tends to be heavily financially privileged. So I think that kind of idea of who the ski bum is also tracks with demographics and who feels, who has access to access to skiing and who also feels welcome in, in ski resorts and in ski towns. Cause it is a sport in a lot of ways with a high barrier to entry, you know, financially or in any kind of, you know, social direction. Right. Yeah. And I do think many people see skiing as a sport of privilege. Did you uncover anything about access in your book or um, perhaps efforts to open up access to more people, uh, to let more people into this world of being a skier? Yeah, I think there are there are definitely some um, some efforts to access to make skiing more affordable, more local, more community oriented. Um, I'm in Sun Valley right now, and there's a local ski hill in Haley, Idaho, just down the road that um, uh, had been kind of dormant for a while and just reopened. And I think, I was talking to somebody last night, I think they said tickets were $10 to go ski there versus a day ticket at Sun Valley, which I think is $140. I'm not, I don't know the numbers right off the top of my head. But I think that um, in, there has been a little bit of a move to reopen small local hills, to find ways to, um, you know, provide channels into skiing that aren't that $150, $200 holiday veil ticket. Um, but I think it, skiing is, from the industry side or the resort side, skiing is not a great money-making business. And so a lot of these places, the margins are pretty slim. Um, and there's been, you know, consolidation in in terms of resorts between, you know, Altera and Vail are the two now biggest resorts holding companies in the country and they they now own a pretty significant share of American ski resorts um and then they can kind of decide pass pricing ticket pricing so I think a lot of times the the financial side is coming down like top down from a couple large companies so it could be harder for the small resorts who aren't you know community-run resorts co-op run resorts to to compete and to kind of be able to make it work when they're up against some big, big corporations. So I think that's kind of an interesting tipping point for the country right now, or the, the ski world right now. Right. And it also seems challenging just in our, you know, talking about resorts and how overcrowded they are as it is. It, it does seem like a lot to ask, you know, to open up to, to more people, but I think it's, it's important. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's sort of, there's sort of a like, you know, bigger picture question in all this, which is, you know, is skiing important or like why should anybody care about skiing is it just this kind of like dumb expensive thing and I think in a lot of ways that's something I've been wrestling with a lot for myself but I think in a lot of ways skiing is this thing that's like so joyful and so fun and so you know there's so much good wrapped up in it that I think it's sort of important to make it as accessible to as many people who want it as possible. Right. Well, we have talked a bit about how skiing and ski bum culture has changed through the years. Your book also examines how rural mountain ski towns have changed in that time. Right now, many across the country, certainly here in Colorado, are in a moment of crisis as they face environmental issues like warming temperatures, 
water scarcity, wildfires, and economic issues too, um, especially affecting people who work at these resorts or in town. In a lot of ways, it feels like the future of these places and the people who live there is uncertain. How would you characterize this moment we're in right now? Yeah, I think we're really in an interesting tipping point for, yeah, towns, Western towns in general. I was in Aspen last week and I talked to Auden Schendler, who's the, the head of sustainability um, for the ski area there. And he somebody asked him the question of like, when do we know? They were kind of being dark and funny about it, but they're like, what, when do we know when like the apocalypse has hit? And he was like, you know, I think we're in it right now. And that, you know, they had just gotten a snowstorm, but it hadn't snowed since December before that. Um, and they're really, Aspen in particular, is really at a crisis point in terms of employee housing and trying to figure out, you know, like, how do they hold on to any kind of local community there? So it feels like we're really at this point where, you know, like, fire is a whole other question. It'll be interesting to see what our water supply is looking like in the spring as runoff starts to happen. Um, so, yeah, I think there are this kind of, you know, looking at sea towns is kind of a microcosm for looking at all these different ecological, social, economic issues that are impacting a lot of places. And I think that, you know, in Aspen, which is such a, you know, hyper, hyper concentrated, you know, sphere of wealth and pressure, um, you know, the conversation there was like, if we can't figure out how to deal with our own issues, how is anywhere else gonna, gonna figure out how to, you know, manage housing, manage income inequality, manage diversity. So I think, yeah, we're at a really interesting tipping point right now. And I think that a lot of places are kind of scrambled to figure out how to, how to deal with that. Yes, I can imagine there are a lot of conversations and a lot of, uh, a lot of thought being put into where they go. Are, what do you see in the future for these ski towns and for the future of skiing? Um, I think ooh, it's a tricky question. <laughs> this is, you know, I came out of this book with almost more questions than I had going in. But I think there's sort of two, to me, there's sort of like two, maybe not two, maybe three maybe top level questions. And I think the environmental question is really the, the, the biggest thing. You know, if there's not, if there's not snow, if, then none of, this, none of the other questions are relevant. So in terms of, you know, carbon consumption, fossil fuel use, we need to start addressing that really, 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 really quickly if we want to have any kind of future for skiing and for a lot of the things that we love to do outside or that I love to do outside. Um, and then, you know, that's kind of like the biggest bubble. But then we look at um, the viability of these communities and kind of like a social dignity question of who can who can afford to work in these towns. Like you said, can people afford to live where they work? Are we, what's the, what's the livable wage for workers in a lot of these places? You know, who, who are we trying to take, who are, as a community, who are we trying to take care of and include? So I think that there's sort of the like really big picture environmental question that we're going to address. And then there's the also big, but maybe a little bit smaller kind of social question, economic question that's so, so tied up. Right. Well, lastly, and this may be different for skiers versus non-skiers, but what do you most hope people will take away from reading your book? I think that, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, and I think this isn't just just related to skiers, but I think it can be really easy to, so much of skiing is nostalgia. I'm kind of looking back and thinking like, oh, you know, like, the 80s look so glamorous and I think it's easy to kind of get caught up in this like oh it's not as good as it used to be things are changing 
resorts are more crowded and traffic is worse and get really grumbly. And I think the thing that I'm taking away from that is like, if we're frustrated by that, we have to be the ones to change it. You know, like we're the, if you're a skier now, there's kind of like an onus on you to try and make it better. So I'm trying, trying to really think about that. Like, okay, how do we, if we want to be able to ski forever, or, you know, if I want to be able to ski forever, like what can I do to hold on to that and try and make that true? Heather Hansman is a ski journalist and author of Powder Days, Ski Bums, Ski Towns, and the Future of Chasing Snow. Heather, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Oh, so nice to talk to you. Products like nonstick pans and waterproof jackets have something in common. They're often made with chemicals known as PFAS. But the man-made chemicals don't break down in the environment or in our bodies, and they're suspected of causing cancer and other health problems. For KUNC, Madeline Beck reports on efforts to ban PFAS in one popular winter product, Ski Wax. I'm up at Bogus Basin, a ski resort outside Boise, Idaho. A warm day means slightly slushy snow, but folks are trickling onto the ski lift all the same. In the rental building, manager Eric Strubar buffs the wax on a child's ski. Strubar says he heard about PFAS being a problem in high-end ski waxes a few years ago. The chemicals had been on skis and boards in various forms for decades already. There were myriad of powders and different things, and then waxes that were mixed, you know, had them mixed into it. Now, there are a number of races where the substance is actually banned. But Strubar says as long as the playing field is even, that's what matters most. I haven't heard any, any complaints. PFAS wax, also called fluoro or fluorinated wax, does make skiers go faster than older alternatives, especially in cross-country races. But there are definite downsides. Research shows that the wax can contaminate the snow and ground. Gail Carlson is an assistant professor at Colby College in Maine. Her son was a Nordic racer, and she was concerned about the waxes. After a race in 2020, she went to the start line and tested the snow. And the snow was so contaminated that the testing lab that did our work for us, you know, asked me, like, what is this sample? As I mentioned earlier, it's now against the rules to use PFAS wax in certain races. But racing organizations have been taking a measured approach that makes things a bit confusing now. PFAS rules depend on the race types of PFAS, whether it's on U.S. soil, whether it's run by the international ski organization FIS, or the group here known as USSA. Alpine and Snowboard has decided to follow FIS rules, but if it's a USSA-sanctioned race, they cannot use fluorocarbons. Cross Country has gone all in on a fluoro-free environment. That's Stephen Poulin, Managing Director of Brav USA. Brav owns ski wax leaders Swix and Toco. Poulin says that while racing rules are complex now, the future of wax is PFAS-free. His company no longer even makes PFAS waxes, thanks to millions spent on a research project it started in 2009. We knew there was different chemistry out there um, that was just better for the environment. The EPA did fine Swix in 2020 after its PFAS wax imports violated the Toxic Substances Control Act. 
Still, Gulen says that the outcome of EPA's sanction, which included a $1 million public education campaign about PFAS wax, was a good one. I think we're going to all be able to look back and go, wow, that's how it's supposed to work. Um, That's really how it's supposed to work. If PFAS waxes are banned, there are scanners of a sort to detect it in the field. But they don't work perfectly yet, and not everybody has one. Still, research shows bans alone can work. Maine has ordered industries to phase out all kinds of unnecessary PFAS uses by 2030, including ski wax. That's thanks to research like Carlson's, and the ski area that she tested a few years ago is also banning PFAS wax. So she went back to see how the ban was working. Another research student and I went out and gathered snow again at the start line right after the race, and there were there was hundreds of times less PFAS contamination in the snow. There's an effort to make similar changes in Colorado. Sonia Lunder with the Sierra Club says if the bill she's supporting makes it into law, it could affect a bunch of products. Fabric treatments, upholstered furniture, cosmetics, ski wax, products made for kids, food packaging and cookware, and finally oil and gas uh, or fracking chemicals. Ultimately, those in the ski wax industry say their successes show that these other kinds of companies can make the move away from PFAS too. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Madeline Beck. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find more stories at our website, KUNC.org. And that's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we hear what it was like to work at a busy grocery store during the height of the pandemic from a local author who wrote a book about his experience. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat and Jackie High. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.